Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome back, OnScript listeners. I'm Matt Lynch, and we have something different for you today. First off, could I ask that you head on over to iTunes and flood them with ratings for our show? If you've already given a rating, there's nothing stopping you from hacking into your kid's account to give us another. It's for a good cause. Second, we have a different sort of episode this week. Chris Tilling is going to be sharing a paper he gave at Princeton Theological Seminary a few months back, and we're releasing two episodes this week, so we're taking that uh, discussion of Chris's and splitting it in two so you can digest it in bite-sized chunks. I'd also say that he really gets rolling in part two, but part one is where Chris teased things up, so it's really important. Um, He also gives a little commentary, wit, and humor along the way, so enjoy, and thanks for listening. On script, co-founder Matt Lynch asked me to read out a lecture I recently gave at Princeton Theological Seminary, and this and uh, the following episode uh, are the result. And I'm not just mentioning his name now so that if this flops, you know who to blame, Why am I mentioning him, actually, apart from that? Well, anyway, um, in Matt's Old Testament sort of wisdom, he realised that, you know, an entire hour of me holding forth in a lecture might be a little like reading out the whole of one and two chronicles at a wedding reception. So, with his Solomonic wisdom, he suggested I cut this baby into two. Two episodes, that is. And it'll also give me a chance to say what you can expect and why you might be interested in listening to this lecture. So why read this out here? Why not an an interview as normal? Well, one of the things we hope to achieve with our on-script interviews is to bridge build. We're also hoping, believe me, we're also hoping royally to catch someone out in a quick-fire round one day. Uh, But bridge building is right up there. And this is our goal with that bridge building. We aim to think theologically about the Bible and biblical studies, but also biblically about theology. We want to think about what it means to read biblical scholarship in the church and for the life of faith. And and this is one reason why we are really fortunate to have Amy Brown Hughes as a co-host alongside a bunch of biblical scholars. But all of the hosts are concerned to think about the Bible in light of theology and faith. And the following lecture cuts in on some of the questions surrounding that overlap between biblical studies and systematic theology, between reading the Bible with biblical scholars and with doctors of the church. In particular, uh, my lecture will raise these questions by pondering the figure of Karl Barth and his interaction with the Bible. Hence, we thought it would be fun to trial this kind of lecture on OnScript. Kalbart was a Swiss Reformed theologian of the previous century, and, well, arguably the most important church theologian since Thomas Aquinas of the 13th century. He is famous for his lengthy but tectonic plate-shifting church dogmatics. He's also famous for his resistance of the Nazis, the Barman Declaration, his focus on the doctrine of the Trinity, his rejection of aspects of 19th century so-called liberal theology, and he's famous for his Romans commentary. 
And the first edition of that Romans commentary, which is called Der Römerbrief in his native German, fact useful for my lecture, um, was published in 1919, exactly 100 years ago, and it set the theological cat amongst the biblical pigeons. He raised questions that we are still trying to answer today. How does the Bible relate to theology? What does it mean to read the Bible as a biblical scholar, yet as a follower of Christ? With the audacity of a genius, he picked up Romans and read it in a way that directly addressed his congregation in Switzerland. And his answers, his presentation, struck a chord with a lot of people. But his commentary shocked, scandalised biblical scholars and continues to do so. My lecture, then, um, looks at what Bart was doing in this controversial Romans commentary. It examines why biblical scholars in particular took such offence. It presents reasons why Bart might not have been as mad as some thought he was. And it asks what we might still have to learn from Bart. But in this first part, and remember, Matt wants to chop things in half because Solomon, in this first part, I get into Bart's famous commentary and ask why biblical scholars might think the theologian Bart was a bit of a jobby. Um, you know, why scholars of the Bible who, who read the original languages closely and examine historical background and such like might think Bart was a bit of a nutter. We will nut jobify Bart, so to speak. So without further ado, uh, let me begin with the recording. This is Chris Tilling, one of your on-script hosts for a rather unusual podcast. Over the summer of 2019, I presented a paper at the Centre for Bart Studies in Princeton on chapters 8 to 16 of Bart's Romans commentary. It is 50 years since his death and 100 years since the publication of the first edition of his commentary, so it's an important year for Bart's studies. And his Romans commentary is one of those must-reads for students of theology. It was once called a bombshell on the playground of theologians. But what might a modern New Testament scholar like me make of Bart's work? What might biblical scholarship still have to learn from Bart? Well, this paper explores these themes by looking at what New Testament scholars might do when reading Romans 8-16. I then look at the problems biblical scholars might have with Bart's strange commentary. But as we shall see, Bart has more to offer contemporary biblical studies than might first be obvious. Exploring Bart's work is not only a lot of fun, but will also shed light on the relationship between biblical scholarship and the claims of systematic theology. And if you've been following some of our podcasts in the last few months, then you'll see that that is a rather dominant thread and theme across all kinds of interviews that we've had with authors. Of course, for those of you desperate to watch me reading out this paper with a few more elaborative comments. I've uploaded a few YouTube videos. But if you wish to forego the eye candy and listen merely to my dulcet tones, the following is for you. The paper is entitled Encountering the Otherness of Bart. A New Testament scholar reads Der Römerbrief, chapters 8 to 16. 
Actually, before I get started, it is worthwhile pointing out that I'm assuming certain knowledge of Barth and his Romans commentary. Um, let me just briefly say that in 1919, he published the first edition, um, but most people know Barth's Romans commentary from the 1922, the second edition, which Barth radically rewrote in light of a different understanding of the relationship between time and eternity, among other things. And that's enough background information. I began this paper by expressing my gratitude to the organisers, as you would, but I wanted actually to indulge a personal aside to start, because Karl Barth has played a key part in my own personal and theological development. Um, having emerged from a very conservative evangelical background, the process of beginning doctoral studies while living in Germ Germany painfully exposed some of the unhealthy and problematic commitments I had vis-a-vis -vis theology's subject, the nature of holy scriptures, ecclesial exclusivism, and much more besides. Indeed, surrounded now by what I consider to be unsound theologians in Tübingen, my faith spiralled into a season of anguished doubt. Burdened by ever-renewed attempts to justify my received Christian faith on this or that metaphysical basis, all of which could not bear the weight which I was placing upon them. Barth's theology slowly entered the fray, and in one particular Christmas service in the local Landeskirche, it dawned upon me that my doubts and struggles were the symptom of a theology in which I took myself too seriously. I'd forgotten my place that God is God, Karl Barth's emphasis on the freedom of God in Revelation both destroys our crumbling citadels and points to the rebuilding of something else completely that hangs in thin air, suspended by nothing but God's grace. Following these events, a friend kindly gifted me many of the Gesamtausgabe plus the entire Kirchliche Dogmatik, and that's the Church Dogmatics. And so began my journey with Bart, which then shaped my academic engagement with Paul in profound ways. That we ended up naming our son Carl Lucas reflects something of the personal nature of my engagement with Bart. But this is not to say that I am a Bart expert. Alas, I am a Bart dilettante. So in the paper that I'm about to read to you, I offer my thoughts regarding Barth's commentary on Romans 8-16 to as a Pauline New Testament specialist. In part one, I will begin by cataloguing some concerns New Testament scholars might have when reading Barth's commentary, and as we shall see, there are quite a few. After presenting a response to some of these concerns in part two, I will then turn the tables asking what Barth's commentary can teach New Testament specialists. And I will finish up by asking what Bart's commentary actually is. So part one, shocking the New Testament guild. And now for some New Testament scholar speech in character. When reading Bart's commentary, I try to speak for the guild, both when I agree and where I find their projected objections to Bart short-sighted, myopic and dusty. So these, this section should be assessed retrospectively. But simply put, the New Testament scholar is immediately confronted with what looks like a different game altogether. I mean, what might a biblical scholar do when engaging Romans 8 to 16? This will help us you know, orientate ourselves when we're looking at Barth's um, approach. But first, they will want to ascertain the extent of this or that pericope. That is, to make a case, say, 
that the first eight verses of chapter 8 of Romans is the first section of chapter 8 rather than the first 13 verses and so on. They will seek to account for the particular contingent circumstances driving this or that rhetorical section or subsection. Typically, having established text-critical issues, Romans commentaries will then dive into some of the exegetical conundrums. For example, starting in Romans 8, the commentator will weigh up the various arguments for and against whether the law of the spirit of life, that's in 8 verse 2, um, the law of the spirit of life means that law is here to be understood as principle or as Torah. It will comment on the awkward Greek syntax of the phrase, um, the impossibility of the law, that's in verse 3, seeking to establish its grammatical function. It will ask to what extent the phrase peri amatias, that's in 8.3 again, relates to the Levitical sin offering, or whether it's simply sin. Of course, much energy will be spent on establishing to what extent the law of sin and death, that's in 8 verse 2, can be read in ways that correspond to the concerns of the Paul within Judaism or new perspective on Second Temple Judaism schools, whether that is. Paul refers here to something other than the Jewish Torah in toto, because it sounds pretty suspicious, you know, the law of sin and death, and what you're trying to say about the Torah. Turning to uh, Romans 9 to 11, Biblical scholars are sensitive to the, particular, the particularity and persistence of Israel in God's covenant purposes. The spectre of supersessionism, it's a buzzword, will play a controlling role. Perhaps in Romans 13, Paul's politics and the extent to which the imperial cult should be seen as a foil for Paul's rhetoric will be foregrounded. While the repeated language of honour in this and other chapters causes New Testament scholarship, to plumb the findings of social anthropologists, analysing the Mediterranean social script relating to honour and shame, purity and pollution and such like, to shed light on texts, and this is crucial, to shed light on texts which are defined as addressed to people unlike us. Underlying much of this is the concern to establish academic credibility. You know, this isn't devotional thereby setting the project of biblical commentary writing in terms of disinterested or even objective scholarship. Even if lip service is usually given to more nuanced hermeneutical realities in an introduction, but in all places there remains the concern to avoid one of the greatest sins in biblical scholarship, anachronism and its partner ethnocentrism. Indeed, the extent to which we see ourselves as those addressed by Paul is the extent to which we are undermining the historical particularity and otherness of Paul's audience, importing ourselves and our concerns illegitimately into the text. So in sum, what is a biblical scholar doing when they're engaging Romans 8-16? to Lexical analysis, led with accounts of syntactical possibilities, concerns relating to pericopes, ancient rhetorical functions, and wider matters relating to the textual frame and Paul's cultural encyclopedia, will all be foregrounded. And to do otherwise would be to abdicate the task of commentary writing. So, so much for biblical scholarship. Turning to Barthes, Römerbrief, then, the New Testament scholar will worry about quite a few things. And what I'm going to do in the following is go through uh, um, Barthes' um, uh, commentary, chapters 8 to 16, 
pulling on threads that will cause biblical scholars to um, worry, and sometimes intensely. And sometimes those threads will lead me to pull on, on larger themes um, across the entire commentary. Um, but the, the structure of what I'm about to write out is dominated largely by um, Bart's own commentary on chapter 16. So what do we find then in in Bart's Römerbrief? Well, instead of assessing various accounts of the extent of this or that textual chunk, divisions are simply made and without comment. You know, Bart simply divides the first 10 verses of chapter 8 from uh, verses 11 to 27 of chapter 8, for example. Bart doesn't even mention some of the pressing lexical and grammatical concerns that I mentioned um, earlier, you know, the kind of questions that biblical scholars might busy themselves with. Nor does he do that elsewhere, really, in chapters 8 to 16. On the law of the spirit language, Bart simply asserts this law is the spirit. At least he does in the second edition of his Romans commentary. And remember, I said uh, there are two commentaries that Bart produced, and they're both very different. The English translation that many work from, the Hoskins translation, is based on the 1922 version. Um, I'm going to be making reference to both the 1919 and 1922 versions of his Romans commentary. Um, what is more, Bart does not comment on the whole text, but focuses only on certain sections or phrases, and this is amplified in the second edition. Other phrases are simply ignored, suggesting that the reader and their concerns are overwhelming the text in an act of hermeneutical violence. Rather than a stance of objective distance, Bart regularly uses first-person pronouns, which act to include him and his readers within the Pauline address. Christ is our freedom, says Bart. He is our advance beyond the frontier of human life. This is in comment on 8.10. And then page after page of we this and our that. The almost sermonic nature of Bart's rhetoric is jarring. Rather than a careful weighing up of interpretive options, the style is more expressionist, as has often been pointed out. Um, indeed, and even more so in the second edition, we see something that Bruce McCormack describes as Bart's proclivity for, quote, indirect communication which seeks not so much to convince the reader of an argument as it does to clear away obstacles to the Spirit's work of making her to be a witness to the truth. This is emphasised by the kind of repetitions and rhythm you might expect from a sermon. Commenting on the phrase, God sent his own son, Bart's paragraphs convey something of his excitement. There is nothing here of disinterested objectivity. God sends him is Bart's repeated phrase, which then introduces various angles and what he takes the, the words to mean. On Romans 8.16, just listen to Bart's devotional joy on display, commenting on Paul's phrase, if children. It's my translation of the German, because the English translation kind of mucks it up. We, God's children, we pause and consider the entire unintuitableness, impossibility, and paradoxical nature of this statement. We, God's children, one can't just say that. It is either the praise of the redeemed or blasphemous gibberish. But whether it is the one or the other on our lips, we have already said it, dared and said it with Abba Father. 
Or again, Bart speaks of that act of thinking, which is identical with, quote, that proper worship of God, with that once and for all bowed adoration of God. This kind of language is not so easy to find in the first edition of the Romans Commentary, by the way. And, and that suggests to me that we shouldn't speak too hastily of the first edition, Bart's first edition, as joyful, and the second edition as angry, as is common. Um, the, the examples I've just given are not in the first edition, which is by contrast duller, lacking the vibrancy of the 1922 edition. The second edition is fervent, not simply angry. And compare Bart's advice as to how to witness to the revolution, capital R, revolution, this comes later in the commentary, by not becoming angry. And perhaps scholars of Bart might learn something from the synoptic problem. Why not create a synopsis of at least the 1919 and 1922 versions side by side, which might help trace Bart's development more clearly? Anyway, that was di digression shameless digression, what else might the biblical scholar stumble over when reading Bart's commentary? Our key dialogue partners will be other biblical scholars, in the main. But in Der Römerbrief, there is little by way of such interaction, much less so actually in the 1922 version than in the 1919 version. Instead, long passages are drawn from Luther or Calvin, and the text is peppered with references to Kierkegaard. Note how I pronounced it right there. That's intellectual bonus points. Admittedly, occasional mention is made of Eulichia, usually critically, and he was a biblical scholar. But either way, it makes for an odd commentary. Further, his use of intertexts are selective and problematic. And what I mean by intertexts um, is the way in which uh, um, Paul will use Old Testament um, passages in order to um, uh, make his argument. Um, uh, intertextuality being a key part of the way, the fabric of Paul's letters. Anyway, back to the paper. Um, here's an example. When commenting on 8.11, Bart makes happy reference to 1 Timothy 6.16, even though this is a disputed Pauline text and later than Romans. Why not point to pertinent intertexts such as Ecclesiastes 7.13, Psalm 70.20, and so on, at least for 8.11. The intertexts he appeals to in comment on Christ not pleasing himself, that's in Romans 15.3, are wide and, let us say, creative. Perhaps more importantly, he regularly sorts his argument with references to Job and Ecclesiastes to help establish his basic starting point of divine otherness. But this looks more like a need driven by his own admitted system, if it should be called that, imposed on the text, as described in the preface to the second edition. But, I know that I have laid myself open to the charge of imposing a meaning upon the text, rather than extracting its meaning from it, and that my method implies this. My reply is that if I have a system, it is limited to a recognition of what Kierkegaard called the infinite qualitative distinction between time and eternity. Then he goes on to cite Ecclesiastes to make his point. But are these concerns internal to Paul? And if not, should they control his exegesis as they do? And for more on this, I refer to Francis Watson's recent, if extremely uneven, article on Bart, Rewriting Romans, uh, which was in the book Freedom Under the Word, um, edited by Ben Rhodes and Martin Westerholm. 
Indeed, this leads to wider concerns that have been voiced by New Testament scholars for as long as his commentary existed. Is Bart simply imposing theological categories? Using the text as a launch pad to create various theological meditations that bear little resemblance to Paul's concerns in the letter. He speaks of the Spirit as, quote, the third person of the Godhead, for example, and of Christ as he passes through the Old Testament. The Jesus is, he notes in passing, quote, very God and very man, born of the Virgin Mary. Claims which are taken to be commentary on Paul's phrase, God sent his own son. Anachronism, shout a choir of New Testament scholars. Indeed, this dovetails with the influence of philosophically related themes in his commentary, particularly as it pertains to epistemology and time, which are correlated to the fundamental theological determination uh, driving both Romans' commentaries. On the one hand, and especially in the second edition, the terms time and eternity are deployed to maintain God's deity, and precisely so in his gracious self-revelation. This drives much of Bart's commentary, including Romans 8, particularly the subsection The Truth, as well as his famous comments regarding time in Romans 13. But these are highly philosophical distinctions drawn from outside Paul. They nevertheless shape his exegesis thoroughly, such that he claims, for example, quote, flesh is the decision which occurs in time. But is flesh decision for Paul? Is eternity concealed, yet preserved within our time, as he says? Is this a theory of time, if that is what it is, to be preferred over other models? And how can we expect this to be internal to Paul? If it isn't, How legitimate is it to impose these structures to shape the exegetical work, and so profoundly? Of course, epistemology is related to Barth's overriding concern to negate all human possibilities, to maintain God's sovereignty in Revelation. Page after page takes Paul's language, switches the terms of discussion, and then makes it about the lack of human epistemic capabilities with regard to eternity, so the spirit, Bart declares, is truth, and there is no, quote, object, objective observation of the truth. But not just biblical scholars see here an imposition onto Paul's letters. Alistair McGrath reasons that Bart has an inordinate stress on epistemological matters rather than those soteriological, which he thinks are in Paul. And then we turn to his account of Israel in Romans 9 to 11. Now, it won't be news to anybody, I'm sure, but Bart's moves have been heavily criticised. With some cavalier term switching, Bart speaks of the church when Paul speaks of Israel, and of the unecclesiastical persons when Paul speaks of Gentiles. Has not at least the danger of supersessionism reared its head? I'll come back to what is meant by supersessionism later. Term switching, I note in passing, is not an uncommon move for Bart. The same issue arises in his reading of the weak and the strong in the lengthy section entitled The Crisis of Human Freedom and Detachment, which is essentially most of chapter 15 and all of chapter 14. One might also point to the the, out the preponderance of the language of guilt and forgiveness throughout Bart's commentaries, But this kind of language is periphery in Paul 
at best. Yet for Bart, forgiveness is the righteousness of God. It is the content of proclamation. It is the revolution and so on. But the words for forgiveness do not appear in Romans except once in Romans 4, 7. So these terms are instead added to the rhetoric, switched in place of others to create a picture Paul has not painted. But there is more. Is not Paul's intent in Romans 9 verses 22 to 24 to distinguish two camps of people, vessels of wrath and mercy? Yet the New Testament specialists might be surprised to see how Bart universalizes vessels of wrath to mean all people in time and vessels of mercy to mean people in eternity. Furthermore, Bart's treatment of the 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. This is um, um, Romans 11.4, and uh, I quoted from the 1922 commentary. Um, Bart's treatment of that verse explicitly runs, as he admits, contrary to the plain meaning of the text. Let's think about that for a minute. Contrary to the plain meaning of the text. I'm quoting him. Um, while Paul seems to want to suggest that even in Elijah's day, which was one of the worst periods of national apostasy, as Kena notes, God has not left Elijah alone. The point is, God did not and will not abandon Israel. But consciously read, uh, reads the text in light of what, quote, the word of God reveals here, close quote. Such, and this is his, um, his, his answer, such that Paul does not literally mean 7,000, but rather, quote, the invisible church of Jacob for which there is no limit. Now, all of this, together with the switching of terms relating to Israel and Gentiles, is, we are told, Paul's meaning. That's to quote him, Paul's meaning. He has laid out, he thinks, quote, the main theme of Romans 9 to 11 with these claims. Bart is even confident enough to state and comment on uh, Romans 10, verses 5 to 6, quote, what Moses means, close quote, cue biblical scholar eye roll. Such exegetical methods are why he can confidently state that, for example, the exhortation to, quote, think soberly is not about the pagan virtue of sobriety. But this will not explain why Paul at this point seems to make explicit recourse to a phrase deployed in classical pagan literature, rather than a term typical of his own era. Is it possible that one of Bart's most significant foils, pietism, is determining the exegesis? Yet this decision on um, the meaning of thinking soberly uh, organises his exegesis for a few pages, Bart's account of ethics across these pages is also rather thin, as has been pointed out by others, and Bart's ethics uh, becomes far richer in just a few years. But either way, the lack of specificity here is somewhat ironic, given Paul's fulsome and concrete exhortations throughout these chapters. Bart's categorization of these chapters um, and that's chapters 12 to 13, um, in terms of a chiasm, is very much in the domain of New Testament scholarly interests. Um, he, he speaks of positive ethics, then negative ethics, then the great negative possibility, and then the great positive possibility. So we've got some kind of chiasm here. Um, 
But I haven't found other commentaries that follow Bart on this point, and I suspect that the content of the text does not allow for such neat distinctions and categories. Additionally, the structuring of this section in terms of the distinction between Eros and Agape imports language Paul did not use, namely Eros. Eros is, as far as I know, only used once in the Subduigan in Proverbs. So biblical scholars who deploy anthropological studies may sneer, pointing out that Bart's procedure is etic, that is, uses language external to Paul to structure exegesis. Better would be to use language Paul himself emphasises, facilitating an emic analysis from within Paul's discursive world. Now, of course, this line of criticism could be levelled at various other points at Bart's commentary, such as at the role of, quote, the one, the many, and the all, close quote, which structures much of what Bart says in these chapters relating to ethics. John Barclay's analysis of Paul will also balk at the notion that an ethical action to be such, quote, must be an unconditional, genuine preference which expects nothing in return, close quote. I think John Barclay and others will just say, isn't this Kant dressed up in Christian clothes? Um, Bart actually speaks of affinities with the ethics of Kant in, in this uh, section. And part of the argumentation in these chapters on ethics, as well as his commentary on Romans 9-11, to encodes Israel, Pharisees, religion, with themes of moralism, self-assertiveness, being concerned with deeds and facts, and so on, which paves the way for his Lutheran account of works of law in epistemological terms. Naturally, this links to new perspective criticisms of old perspective Pauline scholarship, in which Israel's pattern of religion, to use the language of Sanders, should not be understood as legalistic. Does this not then have a knock-on effect on Bart's argument about the godness of God in Revelation? Is Bart merely projecting the reformers' battle with medieval Catholicism onto the text of Romans? But so much has been written about old perspective, new perspective, and so on. I'm, I'm not going to linger on it any longer. Instead, and finally, I must alight upon the final pressing issue that stands behind much of what I've already argued. Bart indeed famously lays out his project in the preface to the second edition, in contrast to the commentaries of noted biblical scholars. Commentary is more, he states, quote, than a mere repetition in Greek or in German of what Paul says. The conversation between the original record and the reader should move round the subject matter, die Sache, the subject matter, until a distinction between yesterday and today becomes impossible. Bart's constant recourse to first-person pronouns, which become all the more noticeable in his comments on Romans 12-15, to together with the pastoral immediacy of page after page, suggests a lack of general concern for the contingency of the Roman auditors. As he spells out in comment on Romans 12, to abstract Paul's language would lead to complete misunderstanding, that is, to, quote, abstract of them from the context which has given them birth, close quote. And at this point, one thinks 
that he's going to go on and speak about the wider Greco-Roman and Second Temple Jewish contexts, out of which Paul wrote. But that is not what he means. He goes on to specify that context as, quote, the concrete world in which we live, close quote, leading to the famous exhortation to read newspapers as important for those who want to understand Romans. He nods in the direction of the importance of Paul's Roman addressees on the penultimate page of the commentary, stating, quote, For this body of men and women it seems that theology, this theology, was the living theme. But this acknowledgement of the original auditors finds little space anywhere in his commentary on Romans 8-16, to suggesting that the historical particularity of the letter has not been given due attention. Bart's exegesis, as a result, strays a little from historical anchorage. So his comments on Romans 15.15 and the phrase in some sort more bold takes Paul's text as a launch pad to barely connected theological reflections about standing amicably side by side with Catholics and Protestants. But this is surely the kind of activity, insists, the commentary does not exercise in the preface to the English translation, when he states that his, quote, sole aim was to interpret scripture and not engage in free theologizing, close quote. In fact, perhaps the closest he comes to traditional historical critical exegesis in his commentary on chapters 8 to 16 is a single paragraph on page 534 of Hoskins' translation, where Bart details Paul's travel plans. So thus endeth the speech and character of over 20 objections which might be or have been raised by New Testament scholars with varying degrees of poignancy. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.